together as sojourners. So one of my favorite uh, books, I think it's probably if I was cast away to a desert island, it would probably be if I could take ten books, or maybe even if I could take five, this would be one of those. It's called Wind in the Willows. You've probably all heard of it, but probably because of a terrible cartoon that was made. It's quite frightening with the frog in it and some other animals. Um, I would encourage you, if you've only seen the cartoon and, by, and been scarred by it as a child, um, pick up, pick up a one-penny copy of the book. They're in abundance. It's not just for children. It was written by a Scotsman, Kenneth Graham, and um, we spent four years in Scotland, so that kind of makes it extra sweet to me. But he does a great job in a lot of ways. One of the great things that he does is he talks about home in such a beautiful way, that reality that grabs our hearts. We all are looking for home in various ways throughout our lives. And there's a chapter called Dulce Domum, sweet, sweet domicile, sweet home, in The Wind and the Willows, and I want to read from it. It's a section where mole, there are various animals that are the characters in the book. There's mole, there's ratty, rat, the frog, and the badger, the four main characters. And mole at the beginning of the book just leaves Sort of he's spring cleaning and he just kind of leaves in the middle. Everything's bright and bursting and he, moles live underground. He lives underground in a nice tidy house and he just leaves and goes to his friend's house, the rat's house, who lives by the river and he's a river animal. And they have a bunch of fun and all of a sudden it's, the seasons have progressed and maybe it's coming to fall and he's totally forgotten about the fact that he left. He's le- he left his home for months at a time and he goes, he's walking with Ratty somewhere and all of a sudden... Here's where we pick up. It was one of these mysterious fairy calls. The the mole just gets this signal out of the air. From out of the void that suddenly reached mole in the darkness, making him tingle through and through with its very familiar appeal. Even while as yet he could not clearly remember what it was. He stopped dead in his tracks, his nose searching hither and thither in its efforts to recapture the fine filament, the telegraphic current that had so strongly moved him. A moment, and he had caught it again, and with it this time came recollection in fullest flood. Home! So he'd just forgotten completely about his house. He'd just been wrapped up in springtime and doing things with Ratty, his friend. But all of a sudden, this current in the air, and he smells it. My house. The mole struck a match. So after that, I've skipped some. He digs down. He just, he disappears. And the rat's like, where is the mole gone? He digs down into the earth. He tunnels down into sort of the, the front courtyard of his house. And so Ratty follows after him down into the ground. And here we are. The mole struck a match. And by its light, the rat saw that they were standing in an open space, neatly swept and sanded underfoot. And directly facing them was Mole's little front door with Mole End painted in Gothic lettering over the bell pole at the side. Mole reached down a lantern from the nail on the wall and lit it. And the rat, looking round him, saw that they were in a sort of forecourt. A garden seat stood on one side of the door and on the other a roller. On the walls hung wire baskets with ferns in them, alternating with brackets, carrying plaster statuary, Garibaldi and the infant Samuel and Queen Victoria and other heroes of modern Italy. Down one side of the forecourt ran a skittle alley, little bowling alley with pins, nice, with benches along it and little wooden tables marked with rings that hinted at beer mugs. In the middle was a small round pond containing goldfish and surrounded by a cockle shell border Out of the center of the pond rose a fanciful erection clothed in more cockle shells and topped by a large silvered glass ball that reflected everything all wrong and had a very pleasing effect. Mole's face beamed at the sight of all these objects so dear to him, and he hurried 
rat through the door, lit a lamp in the hall, and took one glance round his old home. And that, to me, there's an even better description when they are in the middle of winter and they're lost in the wood and they find a front door and it's Badger's front door and he's been sort of holed up hibernating and they enter in and there's a description of the ham hocks hanging from the ceiling and the long tunneled brick path hallways that lead into his you know, fire-filled um, kitchen and porridge around the table in the morning and lavender-scented linen sheets that they slip into after being weary. Just wonderful descriptions of home. And um, I really feel like Peter here, he's talking to the church about being in exile, about being sojourners. This is about our life together as sojourners, as pilgrims, as people in exile here on this earth. We're not at home. But I want to say that I really feel that one of the things that hits on deeply, deeply is home. Because in being sojourners, the sort of other side, the unspoken side of that coin is that we have a home and it's not here, it's elsewhere, it's in heaven, it's with the Lord. And it is, in fact, the Lord himself. But I want to say that everything, I could argue, and I will a little bit, that everything that we do in this life is us searching for home. It's in relationships, it's in boyfriends and girlfriends, it's in spouses. Maybe I'll find it in this person now that we've tied the knot. It's in degrees, it's in jobs, job security. It's, uh, it's in sports, it's in hobbies, it's in the toys that we buy for ourselves and the ways that we spend our time. It's in that next vacation. It, we're always thinking that next thing, surely that next thing is what I'm made for, is home. It's going gonna, it's gonna to scratch the itch, but it never does. Um, we weren't made for here. We weren't made for these things. They're broken. They're shadows of something greater. These are not meant to be residences, but arrows, whispers and scents of a far-off country, not the country itself. It's coming. And I want to encourage you and myself this morning to lean into that far-off country, to lean into heaven as you live life here. Rather than leaning fully into life here and now, I want to argue that knowing that this is not, not our home from this text and from Jeremiah, knowing that this is not our home will help us build and inhabit better homes here and now. It will help us live lightly, and I'll explain what that means, while making eternal investments in our relationships, in the way that we work, in the way that we play, in the way that we eat, in the way that we rest, in everything we do. So to put that a little differently, living in light of the next life that's coming, that we were made for, will help us live better in this one. Our lives will then become more this prayer and help us to answer this prayer. What? Part of the Lord's Prayer. What does he say? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. What? On earth as it is in heaven. If we live looking to that life, knowing that we're headed there in Christ, that we're made for that, that there's something more, we don't have to grab all the gusto now, it will actually, in the way that we live, help bring heaven down and help speed his return. So the first point I want to make is this. It's Peter's point. We are a chosen people whose home is God himself. If you look at 1 Peter 2.9, he uses these terms that we're going to parse in just a second. He says, but you are a chosen race. He's talking to the church, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So again, just briefly, who's Peter writing to? Well, we haven't looked at chapter 1, but he's writing to a largely Gentile, not Jewish, 
a largely Gentile, non-Jewish church scattered throughout, churches scattered throughout modern-day Turkey. And he's using all of this language that in the Old Testament, see, Peter's a Jew. And, and he knows this stuff that he's saying about a royal priesthood, a chosen race, a holy nation. All this language is language taken right out of the Old Testament and applied only to Jews. Applied only to Israel, the people of God. And what is Peter doing? He's applying it to mainly Gentiles and totally to the church, Jew and Gentile alike. And he's saying, you are the Israel of God. You are the people of God. There is only ever, and, and I could spend a lot more time on this, but I'm not going to because I want to make more points um, this morning about our life together as sojourners. But all of the script, scripture corroborates the, the idea that God has only ever had one people. Not a people of, of ethnicity. Not a people from a certain place. But God's Israel, his son, his chosen people, have always been the people of faith who trust in his promise, who believe him. And that is what makes them righteous. And that is what makes them his people. And those who trust in God and are made righteous by faith are the ones who are the true people, uh, the true uh, children of Abraham. So um, Paul says it in Romans 2 and then Romans 4 again and elsewhere. Peter says it here. He's using all this language just for Israel in the Old Testament and applying it to the church. And he's saying God's people have always ever been a people who trust in God's promise. And what is God's promise? What is God's word to us? Jesus Christ. All the Old Testament condenses down to, funnels into, crystallizes into that one thing. That one person. Jesus Christ, the God-man. He fulfills the whole Old Testament. And you can be ethnically Jewish. And this is one of the sort of corollaries of what Peter's saying. And reject Christ as the word of God and not trust in him and not trust in that promise that God has given us. And of course, you're not one of God's people. You're not Israel. Israel, as Paul says in Romans 2, as Peter's saying here, Israel is and always has been the people of God who are made so by faith in his word, which is Jesus Christ. And the whole point there is, guys, Jesus, there, there aren't two, three types of people in the world. There's not uh, unbelievers, the church, and Israel. That's not, that's not what Peter's saying to us here. Peter is saying that Jesus Christ is the decisive dividing line in history and between peoples. There are two races. Those that are dead, those that are alive in Christ. Those that are represented by the first Adam, our father in the flesh who disobeyed God and we're all born into that. And those who are represented, according to Romans 5, Paul, in the second Adam, who, are, uh, who trust in the second Adam, Jesus Christ, who came and kept the law in our place and died in our place as our representative before God and lives, rose again to new life in our place and is reigning in our place. So if we learn to, to live in such a way that we see that we, the church, are this holy nation, we are priests that God has given to the world to tell the world about his excellencies and what are his excellencies, the gospel, what he's done in Jesus Christ, we will be leaning a little bit more into heaven bringing heaven down and seeing his kingdom spread. The, the church is not an afterthought. It's not a parenthesis until he gets back to ethnic Israel and to the reinstitution of sacrifices and the temple. No, 
Jesus was the high priest who offered himself the perfect sacrifice. He is the temple. He is the place where God and man meet. There's no longer a need for any of that. He is the realization of all those Old Testament shadows. Um, So that's one of the things that Peter's telling us here. But let me go on. Let Let me parse very quickly some of those phrases before I get into the fact that God himself is our home, this, this first point. So he uses, Peter uses some phrases here on the church as the Israel or the people of God. He says, you're a chosen race. In other words, what? God chose Israel, and we are the Israel of God, the church. He has chosen you. It's so easy to, if you've been a Christian for a while, to begin to think, maybe it's a slow slide. Yeah, I had something to do with that. And Peter reminds us here, no, you, he's chosen you through no good of your own. He's made you his own people. He's set his love upon you in Jesus Christ. You're a chosen race through no good of your own, but totally secure. Your identity as a people is now Jesus. His life, his death, his resurrection, his certain return, his reign. Um, you're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. So royal. He's basically saying you're kings. The, what, the commission that was given to Adam, rule over all the earth, have dominion over it, and multiply throughout it, spread my image in it, has now been given to us, the church. We have been given dominion through Christ, who has all authority over the places that he calls us into. Um, even and especially through suffering and loss, we are working out the kingdom of God as we share with the world his excellencies through the way that we live, through our words, we are acting as royal kings when we do that, that Christ has made us. He also says you're a royal priesthood, so we're priests. Again, we are, a priest was the bridge between God and man. Guilty man comes to the priest to have a sacrifice, an innocent sacrifice offered in his place so he can be at peace with God. That is what the church is to the world. We are offering out this olive branch, holding out this olive branch in everything we do in our workplaces, wherever we go, to the restaurant, to mob pizza after this, in our relationships with our neighbors, with each other. We're offering to each other and to the world this olive branch, the only olive branch, the the sufficient, the perfect olive branch that God has offered, which is there's a way to have peace with me. It's through Jesus Christ, my son. Come to him. Anyone and everyone, Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter. All those walls and distinctions are now broken down. We are one in Christ. You are a royal priesthood. And finally, in this last point, a people for his own possession. We are a people for his own possession. This really gets to it. There's no other language like this. What is Peter saying? He's saying not just, hey, you're, you're created to live a certain way, and you are, but to, to obey these, these rules and these laws and uh, to measure up or to live in cowering fear um, or to pay tribute to the almighty king who is God. No, he's saying you're made... A people, why? Ultimately, for his possession, because he loves you. In the way that a husband possesses a wife, and a wife possesses a husband, you are one flesh, you are given to one another. He's saying, I've made you for me, to be in relationship with me. No other ancient Near Eastern religion was like this. They were all like, do this, offer this up, and then worship me, and then I'll give you a little bit back. That's every, and nothing has changed. Every other religion is a system of works like that in one degree, to one degree or another. Christianity alone says God wants us to know us, to satisfy us, to be in a love relationship with us. 
That's it. And for us, that should change us in such a way that it just spills out, as Jesus said, like a fountain of living waters out into our relationships. Uh, Our love for God, being loved by him first, realizing that, having that open up our hearts, make us alive as he draws us up into the life that he is in his trinity. And then that just affecting relationships and saying, let me show you this God that wants you, that died for you, that loves you, that rose for you. Um, Christianity, it's not a religion of power and service, ultimately, but of love and of relationship. The Westminster Confession of Faith, the first question says, what is the chief end of man? Question one, I think there are like 160-something questions. The answer is, what is the chief end of man? Why are we here? The answer is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And C.S. Lewis tweaks that. There's Lewis, Brooks. Lewis tweaks that a little bit. He's coming more, don't worry. And he says, the, the chief end of man is to glorify God, not and enjoy him forever, but by enjoying him forever. He's made us for himself to know him and to be known by him. And then Peter says at the end of that, he says, he brings all that together. Who has God made you, church? He's made you a people through Jesus Christ, through his sacrifice, in all these ways, to have these attributes. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So why are we saved? Why are we made a people? To proclaim his excellencies. In other words, to have the gospel in our lips and in our hearts in every single thing that we do. Because what is his excellently? How is it displayed Ultimately, if not through the fact that he became one of us to save us, to buy us, to buy us for himself, to pay the price for our sins, to become the sacrifice that we should have been for our sins against God, a holy God, and to make us right with God. And so to proclaim the gospel with our speech, with our words, and the way that we treat each other and others, to lay our lives down, to live lives of humility, and to worship God through Jesus Christ is to proclaim his excellencies. Um, Nothing puts the excellencies of God on display more than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, His justice, the fact that God saw that the problem between us and him and the gulf that was between us and the fact that we deserve hell, but that he loved us so much and he's just and he has to punish sin, um, when we look at the cross, we see his justice. He couldn't just wave a wand and say, you're, you're fine. Just, I love you. Come on to me. That kind of price by God who became man for us had to be paid for us to be made right. God is just. It talks about his justice. It talks about his truthfulness. The fact that, again, he can't lie. Jesus Christ is the Son of God and kept the law of God, the Word of God, to the T perfectly in our place for us because nothing could be put off the table. His wrath against evil because he hates evil because it hurts us and it kills us and it corrupts his creation. His compassion for us. The fact that he would lay his life and his very soul down and endure hell for us and be struck by God the Father and become our sin for us. His mercy. The fact that we do not deserve any of that. As Peter said earlier, he's chosen you through no good of your own. You're a chosen race. You didn't choose him. You were hating him when he died for you. You were railing against him. You were leaving him and scattering to the four winds when he laid his life down for you. To have the power, it's one thing that Christ died for us, a wonderful thing. But I was thinking about this, I think, as I was falling asleep last night. 
the fact that it's one thing, you know, to, to jump in the water and save someone or, or, or to be nailed to a cross powerless and just say, okay, I'm doing this for love. And Jesus did that. But he did it with full power. At any moment, he could have called down wrath on his adversaries who nailed him to that cross, who were spitting in his face, pulling out his beard, whipping him, beating him, hating him, saying, if you had any power, you would come down from that cross. And he had all power and he sat there. That is the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what he's come for. It's for us to proclaim his excellencies, that wonder that he shows us of his heart, the humility of God. How else can we see the humility of God but through the wonderful gospel that he is willing to go that low to make us his chosen people? Wonderful. Wonderful. So our home is God himself. He has made us for himself. Um, so we are a people whose home is God. We are also a people, that's the longest point by far. We are also a people, guys, who are to be humble. Look at verse 10 with me. Look at verse 10. So we are a people who are to be humble. Once you were not a people, Peter says, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Again, this is language used of Israel. And Peter's applying it to the church. Again, Abraham's descendants who have trusted in God's promise by faith. God's promise being Jesus Christ. You can't be a God's people if you reject Messiah. That's the point. There's only one way, and it's a way that anyone from any race, from any place, with any amount of sin can come. Jesus Christ. But knowing that we, didn't, we were not a people at all, and what makes us a people is one thing. God choosing us, putting his love upon us, coming down and dying for us. Something we deserved and he took. Loving us steadfastly in that way. It should just humble us in everything that we do. Knowing that's what makes me who I am. That's what makes us who we are. We don't have perfect theology and, and I've been to, I do this and look at our church and we are so good at our production. We're so good at our slides and we're so good at getting out in the neighborhood and we're so good at programs and whatever it is that we could take and I've tried it. I mean, I've only been a pastor for less, way less than a year, and I've already stumbled so much in that. Every day I have to remind myself, and sometimes I forget. No, what makes us a people is something we do not deserve. And that should just filter through everything. We should be a people that humility is just seeping out of us because that is our understanding. I deserve nothing but what he got. He has given me everything for sonship and life in him. Wow, the more, that penny will never fully drop until we get to be with him face to face. But to the degree that it does is the degree to which humility will settle into our lives and spread out through us to a weary world that is proud and insecure. Um, A.W. Tozer said that humility is as scarce as an albino robin. You ever seen an albino robin? I haven't either. I don't think they exist. Humility really doesn't either in our world. It's such a rarity that when people find it, it's inherently attractive because humility is just all about you. No, I'm interested in you. Forget about me. I'm here. That's fine. Let's talk about you. Not fakely, not sort of off-putting, not um, deflecting because of some insecurity, but I genuinely am interested in you because I'm so secure through no good of my own and what God has done for me. 
I care about you. That and a proud person is the opposite, right? Me, 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 the me monster. What's, who's that comedian that Brian, Brian Regan, the, the me monster? Oh, me, man, I was on the autobahn. And, I was on. and uh, nobody wants to be around me monster. Just like bl- a black hole of personality that's sucking everyone into them. And me, 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 me. No, to be a humble people that are the opposite of that. You, 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 him. Let me introduce you. I'm a high priest through no good of my own. Let me take you to sweet Jesus. Man, if, if we could just, and I've talked about this before, condense our mission to one thing, getting people to Jesus. Getting ourselves to Jesus, being brought to Jesus, getting people to him, introducing people to him. My wife and I have a heart for Muslims, and one of the, we ministered to him in Edinburgh, and I hope to see that rise up more here in this church and, and around the Galleria where he's called us, where there are so many Muslims um, that God made, that God loves, that God died for. People, just like you and me who are under a lie, thinking that God is another way when he's not. He sent his own precious son. That's the one thing they deny, and that's the one thing that's keeping them from knowing him. But, um, man, I hope I can remember what I was going to say. Some people were like, oh, I can see it. He's going to forget. But, yes, I remembered. Ha ha, thank you, Jesus. Um, Remembering that, really, it's our, our sort of hermeneutic for ministry. The way that we try to approach ministry with a Muslim is simple. It's get them to Jesus. They have so many objections often about how the scriptures have been corrupted because that's what they're taught and this and that and the other. But if we can sideline that, if we can just say, look, their own Quran tells them basically to, to go to a Christian and to see what it says about Jesus because, because Jesus they really admire and the scriptures are worth going to in large part. And so hey, it says here in your Quran, let's go, let's have a Bible study, let's look at the person of Jesus, let's look at the Injil, the Gospels, get into a Bible study. Why? Just to show them Jesus, to get them to Jesus, because often what happens is, this Jesus, wow, and he takes us to God. He is God. He is the way to God. Getting people to Jesus, being a people of humility. And you know, that's going to draw some to Christ. It's going to repulse others. Um, But even as it repulses others, they will know because humility is as scarce as an albino robin. There is something otherworldly about those people. Maybe they won't use this language. They probably won't. Maybe they will because our name is Sojourners, but they are Sojourners. They, they're from somewhere else. They're not of this world. There is something distinct about them. And maybe that's just the hook that God is going to use to draw them a little closer to Jesus. So people who are humble, a people who live lean, Okay, 1 Peter 2.11, what is Peter doing with this language about us being sojourners and exiles? In short, he's using language, again, that's only used, it's used of Israel when what? Israel was in exile. When they lived in disobedience, they were exiled, the two southern tribes, the tribe of Judah, really, was exiled to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar and exiled east, brought in mass to a different country, and they lived there 70 plus years in exile, away from the land that God had given to them and promised them. And Peter is using that language of Old Testament Israel and applying it to the church because they they returned to that, to their land. They returned to their land after 70 years of exile. But Peter is using that and he's applying it to the church and he's saying, no, they returned, but really, they didn't go home. There is a better country, church. You are still in exile. Well, where's our home? Heaven, it's where God is, and it's where we're headed. It's where he's going to take us. It's where he's coming from. 
return and to make all things new. This is not your home. You are a people in exile, taking this language used of Israel, applying it to the church. So our promised land, our heaven, our home, it awaits. As Paul says in Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven. So we live here consistent with that belief as if it were not our home. Because guess what? Peter says, it's not. You're in exile. You're a sojourner. There was a student friend of mine who preached, um, he preached uh, a, a sermon on Psalm 90. And as he was preaching, he was sort of illustrating this point. And he said, look, my family and I, we went to Africa for three weeks on a mission trip. And while we did, we lived in out of bags, duffel bags. And nobody on that trip said, man, this stinks. Like, all we have are these duffel bags to our name. Like, we're living out of these bags. Where are our drawers? Where's our house? Where's our land? Where's all our stuff? Why? Of course, it's because we knew we were on a trip. We were here for a temporary amount of time. That's what Peter is saying here. Live lean. Live light. You're not staying here. You're not made for here. You're made for a better place where there's not going to be any more crying, there aren't going to be any more tears, where your deposits that you're making, they're going to last. They're going into a bank account that's going to stay, that's going to increase. It's an investment. Live in that way, not for your own kingdom, building here as if you're going to stay here. That, thing's going to, that stuff's going to be washed away, burned away, wiped away. You know, home is the best. It's, it's a strong pull, that pull for home. But it's elusive. In reality here never reaches our idea of it. And again, it's because we were made for something that we don't find here. But we still crave it. And that's an evidence of the fact that we were made for it. C.S. Lewis, here he is again, Brooke. If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And this. If you're really a product of a materialistic universe, this is a bit more heady, so... Stay with me. If you're really a product of a materialistic universe, in other words, if you're stardust and that's it, if, if all you are is the stuff that the stars and the trees are, there's just one thing and that's material, okay? How is it, this is an, in a letter he wrote to a friend called Sheldon Van Auken, how is it that you don't feel at home here? Do fish complain of the sea for being wet? Oh, do fish, we don't know. Maybe fish complain. Probably not though, Right? But if just fish swim through the water and go, man, I really wasn't made for this world. Probably not. Or if they did, would that fact itself not strongly suggest that they had not always been or would not always be purely aquatic creatures? Notice how we're perpetually, this is a great point, surprised at time, how time flies. Somebody says, how time flies? Fancy John being grown up and married. I can't hardly believe it. In heaven's name, why do we say stuff like that? Unless indeed... There is something in us which is not temporal. We were not made for time, certainly to end in death. We were not. Even elephants mourn their dead. Even elephants know death is not the way it is supposed to be. But how does Peter finish, finish this sentence? He says, but our citizenship is in heaven. What? And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our home isn't just a place. It's not just heaven. It's the one that permeates heaven, Jesus Christ. He has made us for himself, as Augustine said. And our hearts will be, I promise you, friend, let me save you the trouble, restless until we rest in him. 
He is our home. Stop looking for it elsewhere. Live into that reality, and your home here will be all the richer for it. I promise you. You know, people talk um, about not really caring much for God. They know they don't really care much for God or for his word, which is, tells us all about who he is, including his gospel is his word, right? I don't have much interest in Jesus or, 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 or God or his word or any of that stuff or his church, but, but uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to heaven. I'm sure of it. What are these, peop- these people clearly are not understanding that heaven is God himself, unfiltered, unabated, they would hate, hating God here and not having any interest in him here and hating his word here, they would absolutely despise heaven. It would be a hell to them. And so to hell they must go. That's what the way that God has set things up. He's given us time to come to him here and now. And hell is the proper place for all who do not flee to Christ. And I just want to say, does that... Does the mention of that word and that reality scare the pants off you? If it does, that's a very good thing. And I would encourage you to flee to Christ. He has made you for himself, and he is waiting with open arms to receive you. As my old systematics professor was fond of saying, his arms are open, and he has never, he has never turned away anyone who comes to him. Never. I deserve what you took from me, I believe. Come, come now. We are a people who fight briefly. Um, How ought we to live as sojourners, knowing that we have a better country ahead? Peter says, basically, you ought to live waging war. Like soldiers, not consumers, not vacationers. We are at war, and there is a fight going on for our souls, as Peter says here at the end of this text. It's one reason that we have a map back there. Um, It used to be on my wall in my study because I like to be reminded it's not just so that we can show you where the parishes are. I know you thought it was. It is that. I use the word just, advisedly. It's because at war, you have to have maps. Churchill, one of my heroes, certainly not a perfect person by any stretch, lots of, lots of foibles and serious sins, but someone to admire in lots of ways. He had a war room down in the tunnels in London, and he, uh, he had maps everywhere. He just loved maps. That's because you have to know what's going on in a war. You have to know where things are, and you have to have maps there for We are at war. This is a reminder to me and should be to us that God has given us this place. He's planted us in this place, and he says, he's, he's saying to us, you are at war. You are soldiers with all victory, with all authority in Christ. Go lay your lives down. Proclaim the excellencies of him who has laid his life down for you, who is alive, who is reigning, who is coming again. Live lives of humility. Live lean. Remember that you are at war. We are people with perspective. 1 Peter 2.12. We are a people with perspective. What does he say? He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. On the day of visitation. I want to touch on that phrase. What is Peter talking about here? He's, um, he's probably talking at least, at least about Judgment Day. The fact is that Christ came in weakness the first time. God came as a man who is Jesus, who will always and forever be a man to be our representative before the Father. He came as a man in weakness so that we could crucify him. 
If he'd come in power, we never would have crucified him. In being crucified, he provided a way in for us to have a substitutionary sacrifice. He took what I deserve. I come to him. The second time he comes, he's going to judge injustice and truth. And all of us who have come to Christ, who are covered in his righteousness, in a truthful judgment, we stand because of what he's done for us. That's what God sees. All those who have rejected Christ, who have decided to go at their own, will be judged. He's not going to come in peace. He's not going to come in weakness. He's not going to come on a beast of burden, on a donkey. He's going to come on a war horse. He's going to come as a victor. He's going to come and make all things new and destroy every opposition against him. This is the day of visitation. This is what we ought to be thinking about, living in light of, preaching to ourselves and to our fellow man who is living a ticking time bomb. This is how we live as sojourners. Keep our bags packed. Remember that our God is reigning and he's coming again in furious vengeance. Flee to Christ. And finally, we ought to be a people who are for the city. In the city, very much in this world, but not of this world. Very much in this city, but not of this city. Brooks read the text from Jeremiah, and, and those who orchestrated this series, this four-week series about who we are as a people, were brilliant to bring right up alongside a text from Peter about how this world is not our home. To bring right up alongside of that a text from Jeremiah, the prophet, where the, he's speaking to the people in exile, Israel. 550 years before Christ came. And he's saying to them as they're in Babylon, don't just live. You are sojourners. You are exiles. You're out of your country. Don't just live checked out. Build houses. Build vineyards. Invest. The good of the city is your good. Work for the welfare of where I've placed you. It will be for your welfare. This is the whole picture. I want to say briefly, briefly, that as sojourners living for a home that is not fully here, it's somewhere else, it's God and his heaven, and he's coming again. It will help us live humbly and lean in all these ways, but it will also help us to invest, knowing that we can make investments here, we can drop acorns here. Everything that we do by faith in Christ and what he's done, and the fact that he's coming again, and the fact that his kingdom is spreading as we proclaim his excellencies is an acorn. We're dropping, we're dropping, we're dropping acorns. Those acorns matter because guess what? There is an oak tree. That's why they matter. The oak tree is our home. The oak tree is the new heavens and the new earth. The acorn doesn't matter a fig if the oak tree doesn't exist, but everything is going to be made new. And everything we do by faith is a deposit in the soil of something that's going to grow forever. It will not be lost. That is the assurance of the resurrection. It's how Peter starts his book. Yes, he's talking to us about exile. Yes, he's talking to us about the fact that don't, <coughs> don't live like this is your home. But he's not therefore saying eject. Have an eject mentality. Hell in a handbasket, you guys. I'm out. No, he's saying because of that reality, we can invest knowing that what we do by faith in what Christ has done in his resurrection, he's making all things new. I'm dropping acorns. I'm dropping acorns. And those are going to grow in God's way and in God's time forever into oak trees that will be oaks of righteousness that will contribute to whole civilizations that last for eternity. Um, 
Martin Luther, I've shared this before, he said, somebody asked him, the reformer, lived 500 years ago, somebody asked him, what would you do if you knew God was returning tomorrow? You know what he said? Some of you do because you've heard me say it or you've read it perhaps. He said, I'd plant a tree. Are you insane? I'd plant a tree. And then he said this, think of how well it would do. What was Luther doing? He, had a, he was showing us a great understanding of the fact that we as sojourners here are living in light of what's coming. He's, God's just not going to wipe the slate clean. He's going to use everything that's been done for his son. All the proclamation of his excellencies, all the living lean, all the living in humility, all the pouring our lives out. Investments, acorns. They're going to grow up forever when Christ returns. He's going to use all of it. He's going to purge all that isn't of that. And he's going to bring to life and to fullness and fruition all that is. Your investments will matter forever. Live, sojourners, in light of that. Live in light of that. I'm closing and I'm finding out where to land this sweet, sweet plane. Let Let me just close with this. Most of you spend most of your time working for a wage somewhere. Because of what I have said, because of what Peter said, because of Jeremiah, because of what Christ has done, your work matters. Your work is an acorn. Doing it for the Lord, doing it with excellence, doing it by faith in Christ, doing it for the fact that you know because you're there, he's called you there for the time being. Maybe he'll call you elsewhere, but you're there. Tomorrow, Monday morning, that's your mission field. It matters. The way that you do your work what are you proclaiming as you live and work and speak to your coworkers? Are you proclaiming that you're trying to get it all here and that your home is here? Or are you proclaiming that you're from a different place, that you're made for a different place, that someone has paid a price for you and he's coming again? Good work is part of what we were saved for, an expression and extension of the gospel. My friend Blake Schwartz in an essay titled Work from Creation to Eternity, he says this, and I'm closing. The law of love that we are to follow cannot properly be understood apart from creation and later restoration in the new heavens and the new earth. Christ's dealings with sin, so the gospel, right? His laying down his life has a deep and rich context. It wasn't just, that's not the way the Bible starts. The Bible does not start with the gospel. The Bible starts with creation and it finishes with recreation. That is what Christ came for, a new creation. And all that we do because of what he's done, because of the gospel, is contributing, is heading toward, is helping build that new creation. He says this, right, Blake, there is an eternal significance to redemption that extends to all things. And then the more that we think about heaven and our employment therein, the more we will see our life as a prelude, quote, for the grand eternal symphony to come. Let's pray. Father, I pray, I thank you for this word. It's such a treasure. It's such a gift. I pray that you could help us to live in light of this truth more, more and more and more and more. Knowing that we have a home, that you are our home. Having that on our lips, and I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.